Welcome to the Resurrection Church Podcast. Resurrection Church exists for the glory of God and the joy of His people. If you're looking for a church in the upstate of South Carolina, please join us at 9 and 11 a.m. on Sunday mornings at 900 North Main Street in Greer, South Carolina. We pray you'll be blessed by this message. If you have your Bible, go ahead and turn to Philippians. We're in chapter 3 of Philippians. <clears throat> We'll start reading in verse 17. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. This is the Word of God for the people of God. Thanks Thanks be to be to God. You may be seated. Good morning. Hope you're doing well today. It's good to see you all this morning. Um, What comes to your mind when you think about heaven? Um, Paul refers to heaven as a place where our citizenship is now located. A commonwealth, a country, a kingdom that we are now citizens of and to which we now belong. But where is it? What is it, right? Like, and what does it mean for us to belong to it? Like, if we just played a little word association, and, you know, I say the word heaven, and you start to voice what comes to your mind first, you might first think of up. Sky, stars, universe, someplace that's out there, right? far away, a distant land, a distant country, maybe another dimension that we can't see. You might just think out there, up and out there somewhere. You might also think of just some floaty place, right? Like, like clouds and angels with wings and, and harps, something that's just spiritual and not material, okay? You might just think of the afterlife, a place where people go when they die, right? A place that is at least for the most part significantly disconnected from the reality that we know now, okay? You might also just think about the place where God lives, right? Like there's, there's, a, there's a place and that's where God is. He's there and not here, right? Like we know there's something wrong with that theologically, but our minds maybe subconsciously go there that there's a place and God is there and he's not here. Jesus is there and they're not, he's not here. The angels are there and not here. We're here, they're there, right? But it's important for us to understand something. When, when God in his inspired word talks to us about heaven, okay, Essentially, what he's talking to us about is the reality of himself. He's talking about the reality of his existence 
And that's hard for our finite minds to get around. Okay? In other words, when the Bible speaks about heaven, the Bible, the Bible is talking about the reality of God who, though he created everything in the universe, including the world, he's not of the world. Does that make sense? That's why Jesus, when he talked about the Father and when he taught us to pray, he said, pray like this, our Father in heaven. That's not because Jesus is trying to tell us that God is there and not here. You understand that, right? Like he's the big man upstairs or that he's distant from us. He's way out there somewhere, untouchable, and we can sort of barely pathetically reach out to him in prayer by saying our father who's way out there somewhere. That's not what Jesus was communicating. What he was saying was this, pray to your father who's not of this world. Does that make sense? That's the reality of heaven. It's hard for us to get our finite minds around that. So when Paul says, our citizenship is in heaven, what is he saying? He's not saying less than this. We don't belong here anymore. Like we, our citizenship, our belonging is to God. And God is not of this world. That doesn't mean he's not present in the world. It just means he's not of this world. So we are people who still live in the world, but we're not of the world anymore because our citizenship is in heaven. I love to talk about this. Remember when God set the bush on fire to talk to Moses? I've used, I've used this before, but... When, when, when God set the bush on fire, here's what he told Moses to do. Moses, take off your shoes because where you stand is holy ground, right? Here's what's so fascinating to me. Five seconds before God set the bush on fire, that was just normal dirt, right? But the minute God showed up there and manifested his presence, it became not normal dirt anymore. You're not normal dirt, Christians, Seriously, you're, you're not normal human beings anymore. I'm not a normal human being anymore. I've been, by God's grace, we have been born again by the Spirit. Outwardly, we waste away. Inwardly, we're being made new. You know, I know that we, we talk about this stuff all the time, but this is the, the reality, that the gospel reality that the Bible calls us to set our minds on is that we're here, but we don't really belong here anymore? And it raises a question, doesn't it? How is it that we live well in a place to which we no longer belong? Right? I don't know how many country music fans there are in here, but how many of you are familiar with Garth Brooks' old song, I Got Friends in Low Places, right? You know what that song's about, right? Country boy shows up at a, a formal event and he doesn't belong. Blame it all on my roots. I showed up and, and ruined your black tie affair, right? I didn't mean to cause a big scene, right? Is that what we do? We're here, we don't belong here, and so we just go about causing scenes because we don't play by the same rules anymore. Our lives are different. Maybe in a sense, but it's deeper than that, okay? What does it mean 
to live in the world as citizens of heaven. I don't know that we're going to exhaust that today, but Paul's giving us a little bit about that. Here's what he says again in verse 17. Brothers, join in imitating me. Boy, what a statement. I told the folks pre-service, I wonder how imitatable I am. I mean, Paul's writing this under inspiration of the Spirit, but join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. In other words, imitate me and people like me. Be like me. Like how, Paul? What do you mean, be like you? Well, minimally, if we just look at the context of chapter 3, what has Paul just said? He's counted. Everybody say count. It means he's reckoned, he's, he's compared, he's sized up everything about his own religious pedigree and about his life in general. He's compared it to the worth of Christ And here's the conclusion, the settled conclusion that he's come to and he keeps coming to. It's all rubbish. (laughs) It's all loss to me compared to the surpassing worth of Christ. Just stop and think about your life. Think about all the things that you might be tempted to boast in. And not that they're wicked, right? It's not wicked to know what you're good at. It's not wicked to be thankful for what you have. It's not not evil to celebrate the things about your life that make it unique and special and and, and worth celebrating. That's not evil or wicked, but consider Paul who says, imitate me. Everything compared to Christ, rubbish. And, And out of that settled conclusion... Here's how Paul lives. The Paul who says, imitate me. He is, he wants nothing more. Oh, it just, Lord, I struggle to to put adequate words to this. So I'm just going to use your words that you inspired Paul to write. He wants nothing more than to know Christ. In the power of his resurrection, in the fellowship of his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and by any means possible, attain the resurrection from the dead. That's all he wants. Now, we're going to talk about the difference between believers and unbelievers, okay? And there is a big difference, obviously. But there are some things that believers struggle with that I think unbelievers are are true of unbelievers as well, is that we are so tempted, even though we are born again, full of the Spirit, we are so tempted by lesser treasures at times. We are so tempted, it seems at times, doesn't it, Christians, to be so easy to be captured by things that at the end of the day, we know. It's not like we don't know. Unbelievers don't know, but we know those things, they're rubbish. They're not worth comparing to Christ. Paul says, that's all I want. And because that's all he wants, he pursues, he presses on, he forgets what lies behind, and he presses on, strains forward to what lies ahead. What is that? The upward call of God in Christ, which we talked about this last week. The upward call of God in Christ for Paul is not his ministry. 
It's not the churches that he's planted. It's not the missionary enterprise that he has. It's not his entourage. That's not the upward call of God in Christ. The upward call of God in Christ is Christ. To be like him. To be conformed to his image. To become like him in his death. Paul is not lauding his own piety. You realize that, right? He's not saying, imitate me in my morality. He's not saying, imitate me in my religious practice. He's not saying, imitate me in my adherence to rituals and traditions that might, might be God-glorifying, might be Christ-exalting. He's not saying, imitate me in that. He's saying, imitate me in being so captured by, so caught up with, so absolutely consumed by the worth of Christ that everything else in your life, by comparison, is worthless. That's what Paul is calling us to imitate. He truly has, okay? He truly has the mind of Christ. This is what is so, we don't worship, and I think this might be worth saying, we don't worship the Apostle Paul. Everybody clear on that? He's not Jesus, okay? But he has the mind of Christ. And I think that's why he can say, imitate me. Because when Paul says that, he's calling us to look through him and see Jesus who is at work in him. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 to 8. Have this mind. Think like this would be another way to say that. Among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he made himself nothing. Does that not sound a little bit like I've added up all my reasons to boast and I've concluded that they're rubbish? It's not apples to apples. But Christ, who did not clutch or cling to his divine privileges, made himself nothing. So Paul, having the mind of Christ, has added up all of his religious pedigree, all of the aspects of his own life that might be considered valuable, and he said, that's rubbish. I'm nothing. It's all about Christ, okay? taking on the form of a servant. That's what Jesus did, right? And we talked about that word form. It means essence. It's not like Jesus just pretended to be a servant. He really meant what he said when he said, the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. And Paul would say in Philippians, if I'm to be poured out as a drink offering upon the, upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, Philippians, I'm glad and I rejoice. Paul's a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This is the kind of life that Paul lives. Why? Why does Paul live this kind of life? How is it that he has the mind of Christ and lives from that basis? Well, he says it really explicitly in Galatians, and we've quoted this a dozen times 
in our study through Philippians, Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. How does Paul have the mind of Christ? Because he's leaning into the life of Christ, the life that Christ lives in him, right? Which is mind-blowing, isn't it? When we consider this, this is the kind of guy that Paul is, okay? He's focused on this one thing I do. I press on because of the worth of Christ. I, take, I press on to lay hold of that for which Christ has laid hold of me. This is the kind of guy that he is. And when you consider that, doesn't it seem almost comical to imagine the Apostle Paul spending any time or energy, hardly whatsoever, on earthly things? Like, do you imagine the Apostle Paul getting you know, rather caught up with the things of this world that seem valuable that he might be missing out on because of his pursuit of Christ, like things like money? Do you see Paul getting caught up with that? Prestige? Do you see Paul being consumed by what other people think of him? Comfort? Do you think Paul was the kind of guy, I know I'm speculating a little bit, can y'all handle that? You think Paul was the kind of guy that got caught up by what kind of bed he slept in? Would he be caught up by what kind of car he drives? What neighborhood he lives in, right? Whether or not he had enough money to join a country club or buy a boat or have a vacation home at whatever place. You think Paul would be caught up by those things? Consumed by them? It's quiet in here. How much concern do you think Paul had? Again, let's keep in mind, imitate me and others like me. And just from chapter three, forgetting what lies behind, straining towards what lies ahead, do you think Paul spent a lot of time worrying about his appetites for things like food, drink? I'm not talking about basic needs. I'm talking about abundance. I'm talking about what we're used to. Come on, somebody. Yeah. Right? It, you know, it's 30 minutes after lunch, and we're looking rummaging through the pantry, okay? We're not just talking about getting three squares a day. We're talking about how much time did Paul think about fine food, fine drink, even his appetite for sexual intimacy, how, what kind of guy is this? This is my question. Now, candidly, you cannot read Paul's letters and conclude that he never earned money or had money. That's not true. He did, okay? And he lauds in his letters the value of hard work and getting paid for the work you do. You can't read Paul's letters and conclude that he would have turned down a comfortable bed when it was offered to him. Can't conclude that. Or that he would have turned his nose up at someone showing him appreciation. That's not the kind of guy that he is. Okay? You also cannot read his letters and conclude that he didn't appreciate good food and good drink, right? 
savored for the glory of God and that he would not acknowledge the God-glorifying nature of marriage between a husband and wife and the intimacy that goes along with that. He certainly did, right? There's nothing in the New Testament, Christians, that tells us that we cannot or should not enjoy the blessings of God in this life and righteous joys that we should not savor those for his glory. There's something glorious, Christians, when we sit down around the table with each other and we enjoy good food and we do that as an act of worship that honors God. There's something beautiful about that when you do that at home with your family. Don't hear me say that those things are wicked, but this is what Paul is calling us to imitate is that relatively speaking, compared to the worth of Christ, everything that this life has to offer is rubbish compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. Having the mind of Christ, I think, would mean for us that we take all that this world has, the good and the bad and everything in between, and compared to the worth of Christ, relatively speaking, it's worthless to us because our citizenship is, say it, in heaven. We know this, don't we? I mean, just take stock, Christians. Something's happened to you. We talked about this last week. I mean, like, God is, according to 1 Peter, he's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We know there's nothing that compares to the worth of Christ. We know that, don't we? It's, it, we can amen that. But the hesitancy that we probably feel, at least some of us might feel, in being robust in that affirmation is that we know us. We know how tempted we are to settle for lesser treasures. We know how easily we can be distracted from the worth of Christ. We know how easy it can be at times for us to be caught up and captured by and consumed with all the things that by comparison are not worth, not even worth mentioning when it comes to the worth of Christ. We know this. And there's a part of us, when we look at the Apostle Paul, I mean, amen this if it's true, we look at the Apostle Paul, we hear him say, imitate me, and we look at how he thinks and how he lives and what he presses on, and pr presses for and pursues, and we go, man, I want that kind of life. Yeah. Don't we? We want it, but yet we might feel intimidated because it's like, am I there? Can I get there? Is that possible? How do I do this? I just want to remind you, Philippians chapter 2, verse 12 and 13. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. What a treasure those two verses are. Work out what God is working in. We talked about this a few weeks ago. I don't think the Christian life is a you get out what you put in kind of life. 
not in its essence. It doesn't mean our effort's not involved. It is. Otherwise, Paul wouldn't say, work it out. The Christian life is really we work out what God works in, not we get out what we put in. That's actually the unbeliever's life. You realize that, right? The unbelievers live life on the basis of, I get out of this life what I put in. I get out of me what I put in. And when you compare that to the work that God is doing in his people, through Christ, by his spirit, it's tragic to think that that would be the basis upon which people live their life. I get out what I put in. We work out what God works in, right? And what is it? Let me just point a couple of things out there again. He says, we work out what God is working in, and, and what is it that God is working in? He says both to will, everybody say will. You know what that means, Christians? God is working in us to shape our wanters. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he'll give you the desires of your heart. That doesn't mean delight yourself in the Lord, and he'll give you whatever you want. Means delight yourself in the Lord, and then your wants are going to get shaped after His, right? So God is working in us, <laughs> and candidly, I think we make this more painful than it has to be. Sometimes, God's working in me; He's working in you to shape our wanters. I mean, those of us that have lived long enough to, to say, wouldn't, wouldn't you say that we, you've, you've journeyed with the Lord for quite some time? And as the more you journey with him, the more, the more you come to know him and you grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, isn't it true that our grip starts to loosen on the things of this world? It's like this, this stuff doesn't matter as much. What is that? Is that just because I'm getting older and wiser? No, not only because God is working in you to will, to want what is most valuable. It's, we talk about the kindness of God. We talk about the love of God. And sadly, tragically, we think that God is kind to us and loves us because we're that awesome. Are looking at me like I'm crazy. Am I, am I all right, Stan? I, I got an elder in here. You know what God is absolutely enthralled with when it comes to us? His work in us that puts his glory on display and our joy in the ever-increasing understanding and revelation of that great work. That's what he's enthralled with, is that you and me, because of what he's doing in us, we are coming to a greater and greater and greater awareness of what is most valuable, Christ. And in that, our joy goes up, right? Because when you have what is most valuable, what do you have? Joy. That's an easy one. When you have what is most valuable, you have joy. And isn't it so kind of the Lord Christians? 
that he not only says, hey, here's a way for you to escape my judgment, but he comes to us and says, I'm going to work in you so that your eyes are increasingly open, your heart is increasingly softened, your mind is increasingly drawn towards what is most valuable, my glory revealed in the face of my son, Jesus Christ. And our joy goes up. Where was I? He's working in us to will and to work. Okay? So as our, here's what's true of all human beings, we only do what we want to do. Y'all didn't have enough coffee. We only do what we want to do. And you say, well, no, that's not true, Bradley, because I did not want to cut my grass yesterday, but I did it anyway. <laughs> well, what did you do? You, cut, you may not have wanted to do the act of cutting your grass, but you want your yard to look good. So you get over that hump. An alcoholic will stare at a drink that he or she wants. Why is it when they want the drink that they choose to put it down and not drink? It's because a greater desire takes over. They want sobriety more than they want the drink in front of them. We only do what we want to do. So God, salvation is not less than a transformed desire. God transforms us from the inside out so that what? Our will changes. We now want him. Romans chapter 6, 17 and 18. Thanks be to God, he did something, that you who were once slaves to sin. That's what you were. That's what I was. We were slaves to sin. Why were we slaves to sin? Because that's what we want. We want anything and everything but God. But thanks be to God, we who were once slaves to sin have become obedient from the heart and have now become, ready for this, slaves to righteousness. Why are we slaves? Did God turn us into robots? No, he fixed our water. And now we want him. So with fear and trembling, because we realize, we know this, by God's grace, Nothing compares to the worth of Christ. There is both an exhilarating and a sobering nature to that realization. If he's that valuable, whoa. But if he is that valuable, and by God's grace, I get to have him, yes, God is working in us to grow and nurture that reality in us so that we not only want, but we actually work out what he's working in. Okay? You can have, I can have, the kind of life that Paul has. In fact, I would say, biblically speaking, we have it. Here's the call to lean into it all the more. Imitate me and others like me whose lives are ultimately about one thing, the upward call of God in Christ Jesus.
It's important for us to have absolute confidence. We talked about this last week, that that work that God is doing in us, he's gonna be faithful to complete, amen? It's absolutely crucial we have confidence in that. And it's also crucial that we have an awareness of the reality of the unbelieving world. The reality of the Christian is, I'm a citizen not of this world, I'm a citizen in heaven, and God is working in me both to will and to work according to his good pleasure, and his good pleasure is Christ. Tracking? What's, that's our reality. What's the reality of the unbelieving world? Verse 18. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. That is Paul articulating in no uncertain terms the harsh reality of the unbelieving world. These words are true. They're true. Every unbeliever is an enemy of the cross of Christ. Listen, every unbeliever may not be as wicked as they could be. But the truth is, apart from faith in Christ, you're an enemy of the cross of Christ. And unbelievers who are enemies of the cross of Christ are going to be destroyed. They will spend, this is the other way to put it, they will spend eternity in hell. Unbelievers are people whose God is their appetite. Their fleshly inclinations. That's their God. And Paul says, they glory in their shame. In other words, they're ashamed of what they should be proud of and they're proud of what they should be ashamed of. It's the essence of wickedness. They don't have the mind of Christ. Their mind is set on earthly things. Or in other words, they love the world. That's the essence of an unbeliever. And Paul does not mince words in articulating that harsh reality. But here's what stands out to me. He says it with tears. I don't know if by this point he's articulating this letter. It's still under inspiration of the Spirit, but he's dictating it maybe in someone's writing or if he's got the pen in his hand himself. But either way, when he speaks or writes these words about the harsh reality of the unbelieving world, he's crying while he does it. And that just stopped me in my tracks. Because I think it's important for Christians to understand the huge, significant difference between us and the unbelieving world. We got to understand that, right? Because Christianity, you know this, folks, is not just this spiritual supplement that we've added to our lives that makes our lives better. This is life and death we're talking about here, right? This is righteousness and judgment. This is mercy and wrath. God is not to be trifled with. 
And I think there's a temptation in the church for us to recognize the reality, the difference between believers and unbelievers and look down our sanctimonious noses or be indifferent about this, complacent. Not Paul. Imitate me. Imitate me in what, Paul? I press for one thing, the glory of Christ. Whether I live or die, Christ be honored and magnified in my body. And when it comes to the harsh reality of the unbelieving world, he weeps. He's heartbroken. And candidly, I don't even know how to imagine being like Paul in this when he says in Romans that if he could, he'd be cut off from Christ himself if it would save his fellow Jews. I can't fathom that. But Paul cries white hot tears over the harsh reality of the unbelieving world as he articulates that harsh reality. You know, if we're Christians, if we're going to participate with Jesus in his kingdom agenda, this is really what it comes down to. We are going to have to understand what it means that our citizenship is in heaven. What it looks like to live in the world and not be of it. What it looks like to imitate Paul, the likes of the apostle Paul, in being about one thing, the glory and worth of Christ, and have absolute, unfiltered, overflowing joy in that. And at the same time, cry. Cry over unbelievers. Cry over the harsh reality that they're cut off from Christ. They're enemies of Christ. And their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. And they glory in their shame. This is horrible. There's an emotional complexity to the Christian life that Paul elsewhere in the New Testament says it this way. I'm always sorrowful and I'm always rejoicing at the same time. There's a supernatural complexity to the emotions of the Christian life. We don't need fire and brimstone preachers. We need fiery preachers who cry as they articulate boldly the truth that has to be spoken. Mary's grandfather um, was a prolific pastor in the lower part of the state in the 50s and 60s. I mean, they've named things after him down there. It's, it's, it's really amazing. Like he, His influence in a huge number of churches south of Columbia is really astounding. And the fact that his name still gets talked about to this day. I never met him. He died in the late 60s. Um, but I rem- my grandfather knew him. And I've talked about my grandfather before, right? He's the guy that would witness to people in an elevator, if y'all were here a few weeks ago. <laughs> loved Jesus, and he loved Mary's grandfather. And I've heard old records of Mary's grandfather preaching. And he's got that kind of Martin Luther King Jr. sing-songy kind of delivery with his preaching when he talks about the glory of Christ. You know, he's got that... Just and, and he, man, he would get so fiery. But this, you know what my grandfather said about him? And how many times did he say this to us? 
He said of Mary's grandfather, he preached with a tear in his eye. He proclaimed the gospel boldly. He talked about the most valuable reality in the universe as if it really is that valuable. And he spoke boldly of the consequences of rejecting the worth of Christ. And he did it while he cried. God help us with that. You remember when Jesus, Mark's gospel, he was in the synagogue on the Sabbath and there's a man there with a withered hand and the Pharisees are on the edge of their seat. Is Jesus gonna heal him on the Sabbath? And Jesus looks at him and he says, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or do evil? To save a life or kill it? Who talks that way? Right? I mean, what a question. And they wouldn't answer. How easy is that answer? Uh, kill? No! Right? It's like, how easy is that answer? But they wouldn't answer, and Jesus is angry at their silence. And this is what Mark said about Jesus in Mark chapter 3, verse 5. And he looked around at them with anger, comma, grieved at their hardness of heart. There's an emotional complexity to Jesus that I think Paul has because he has the mind of Christ. And when Paul calls us to imitate him, he's calling us to have the mind of Christ or imitate Christ who was, did not shrink back from being bold about the truth, but he also was grieved over the hardness of heart among people who would not receive the truth. And this same Jesus would say this. You might remember this from our study through Luke, Luke 14, verse 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. You have that put on your refrigerator at home, don't you? That's like your life verse. What is Jesus saying? He's not calling us to hate our family. In, 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 the, the, in terms of the essence of what the word hate means, but here's what he is saying, is that compared to our devotion to him, compared to our love for him, compared to our awareness or our, our consciousness of his worth, every other love gets relativized to the point that it looks like hate. Right? I told this story, I think, when, we, when I taught this in Luke's gospel, however long ago it was, I gave this analogy. You know, I, I, I love golf. I don't get to play hard, hardly much anymore. Um, but I love golf, and I love the Masters. If you're familiar with the Masters tournament in Augusta, Georgia, like one of the most exclusive and prestigious golf clubs in the world is Augusta National Golf Club. I've been to the Masters. I've never played that golf course. You can't play that golf course. There are stories that Michael Jordan pulled up to the gate and offered them a million dollars to play one round, and they said no. Okay? But if somebody called me and said, Bradley, I got us a tea time. And I'm have, I have lunch scheduled with Colin. Guess what I'm going to do? <laughs> Colin, I love you. 
But that just relativized my love for spending time with you over lunch. Not in general, but over lunch. But if I got in the car and I was headed down there and Colin called me and said, I'm in trouble, I need your help, Bradley. I'd drop Augusta National like a bad habit, turn around and come back and help you. Why? Because what we value most has a way of relativizing all other loves. And so when it comes to being a citizen of heaven, when it comes to focusing on one thing, right, there's this complexity of emotion that accompanies the Christian on the journey of faith. And that is our absolute unadulterated joy in the worth of Christ that relativizes all of our other loves. And it also, I think, in and of itself, makes us bold to declare the truth as it relates to the unbelieving world with a broken heart and a contrite spirit. That we're not, we're not arrogant, we're not cocky, we don't look down our noses, we cry as we proclaim the truth. Apart from Christ, you will perish, right? This is what Paul is calling us to imitate. So I think the warning does provide us with a contrast between belief and unbelief. I think the, the emotional state of Paul as he talks about the unbelieving world is also something we're called to imitate. But I think this also tees us up for exactly what the apostle says in Colossians chapter 3, where he says, set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ who is your life right now appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. That's exactly where Paul's going in Philippians 3. But let me rehearse it one more time. So far, Paul says, imitate me and others like me in a being about one thing, Christ. Imitate me in being both heartbroken and bold with regard to the enemies of Christ or unbelievers who have made their belly their God and whose end is destruction. And then he gets to the climax, verse 20. But our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject all things to himself. Our citizenship is in heaven now. Now. Not just when we die or Christ returns. Our citizenship is now, so Christians, set your mind there, right? I think I had this scripture listed, but I didn't read it. Ephesians chapter two, God who is rich in mercy, he made us alive when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, and he has seated us with Christ where? In heavenly places. That's our citizenship. Live like that now. Embrace that now. Our citizenship is in heaven, and the full realization of that reality will come when Christ returns, and he transforms our lowly body to be like his glorious body. What does that mean? It's a body. It's real. Heaven is not some floaty place. 
immaterial. It's real. And it will be physical and tangible. We will be physical and tangible, just like Jesus was physical and tangible after the resurrection. But here's the good news. When our bodies are transformed, they will never die. What time is it? We're predestined for this. I got to read it. Romans 8, 28. I got to read it. I, I have to read it, okay? And we know, and we know, oh, we know that for those who love God, how many of you love God? Oh, come on. All things work together for good. For those that are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Listen, we do not have to wait for the second coming of Christ to know where our home is, heaven or hell. Our home is heaven. And one day heaven's going to be here, not there. That's another sermon. There's going to be a new heavens and a new earth that will be real, physical, tangible, perfect, with everlasting joy and will never die in the presence of Christ who is our life. When you trust Christ, your name is sealed in the citizen roles of heaven. And when he comes, your citizenship comes with him. Where he is, you and I have now been given the right to be with him. To as many as received him, to, them, to as many as believed on his name, to them he gave the right or the power to become the children of God. That's why heaven is talked about as our inheritance. We're part of a family now, and we inherit God, Christ, and his presence forever with transformed bodies, conformed to the image of his Son, in everlasting joy, worshiping him forever, right? Our citizenship is there. What might it look like for us to live that way now? I think at the very least, I'm coming away from this going, Lord, I want to hold on to stuff loosely. I want you, I want to lean in to you working on my will shaping it and forming it after your good pleasure so that my work is also shaped after your good pleasure. That I want to forget all that's behind me. How freeing is that? How freeing is it that God in Christ comes to us and says, in Christ, you're a new creation. All the old's passed away and everything's become new. This is the gospel hope. Imitate Paul in that because Paul has the mind of Christ. And in the unbelieving world, 
may we be bold with tears to proclaim the truth. There's nothing that compares to the worth of Christ. Let's pray. Lord, I long for the day when our marveling of your glory will never be interrupted. I I think that sometimes I come away from church where I have marveled together with my brothers and sisters at your glory and your worth. And I, I, in some ways I dread leaving here and getting distracted from that. So my prayer this morning is that, Lord, you would lead us to be people who are not distracted, that we would be people who are captured by and consumed with your worth and continually count all things as loss compared to your surpassing worth, just like Paul. Help us imitate Paul. Help us also imitate Paul in his heartbrokenness over the unbelieving world. Because if we're going to participate with you in your kingdom agenda, we're going to have to have that same joy and sadness running alongside each other as we make the worth and glory of Christ known. We're going to have to be bold and cry. We're going to have to rejoice and mourn at the same time. We're going to have to somehow live in the world and hate the world and yet love and have compassion for those whom you've called us to participate with you in their lives. Somehow that's got to work and it's only going to work by the power of your spirit. Help us live well in a world to which we don't belong until the full realization of our citizenship is manifested. Help us with that, we pray. Thank you for my brothers and sisters. Thank you for this church family. Lord, we scatter now in your name to make your worth known and to savor your worth for ourselves. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. We hope you've been blessed by this message from Resurrection Church. Please visit resfaith.com. That's R-E-Z faith where you can find more sermon archives, learn more about our church, and find a place to give to our ministry. We'd be glad to hear from you. Drop us an email at connect at resfaith.com.